Uh, this week, the public inquiry into the federal government's use of the Emergencies Act will resume. And soon enough, we will hear directly from the people who made the decision, including, of course, the prime minister. Obviously, we've seen and heard some very interesting testimonies so far. Uh, some of it has been directly related to the decision at hand here. And the question of whether it was justified to use the Emergencies Act to deal with the protests, particularly or specifically in Ottawa, but obviously the situation in Windsor, in Coots here in Alberta, that was a part of the bigger picture of what was happening at the time. So some of the testimonies obviously spoken to the protests, why the protests were happening, how it impacted uh, those uh, who had to live or work in these areas or to get across these border crossings. But ultimately, at the end of the day, we need to understand why the government felt it needed to invoke the Emergencies Act and whether the threshold for invoking the Emergencies Act was met in terms of the scope of the challenge and in terms of the inability for existing law enforcement tools to deal with it. But coming out of all of this, beyond the question of whether this use of the Emergencies Act was justified, what about the Emergencies Act itself? Does anything need to change? Obviously, this goes back to uh, 1988. Uh, the Old War Measures Act was uh, removed and replaced with this. Now, it's the first time government has made use of the Emergencies Act since then. So what does this uh, whole situation tell us about the need to revisit the act itself? It's an interesting piece in the National Post today looking at ways in which the Emergencies Act could be improved or fixed. Well, joining us to talk more about that, very pleased to welcome to the program here this morning, uh, Joanna Barron, who is executive director with the Canadian Constitution Foundation, one of the organizers, uh, or one of the organizations, rather, that's been challenging in court the government's use of the Emergencies Act. Joanna, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Great to be with you, Rob. First of all, where do things stand with, with your challenge specifically? I know there have been a couple of different challenges, but where, where, what's the latest? Yeah, so we're participating. We have both standing at the commission, which, of course, is ongoing until the end of the month. And we also were involved in a judicial review, which will have sort of binding force on the constitutionality of the invocation. That will be heard in January. And one of the points we make in the piece that you refer to is that maybe there should be an expedited process for judicial reviews because courts move at a glacial pace. This has been as expedited as it could be, um, but that will be heard in January. All right. In the meantime, what have you made of of what's been presented to this public inquiry so far, at least on some of these you know, important questions uh, around whether it was justified to use this act? So our opinion is that really it has become clear over the first few weeks. And of course, we, we keep an open mind, but based on especially the evidence from law enforcement, police officials, the Ottawa Police Service, the RCMP, the OPP, that there were absolutely existing tools available. And the Emergencies Act on its text is very clear that it must be an act of last resort. And the opinion of all of those law enforcement agencies that I just mentioned was that they had the existing tools to deal with the situation in Windsor, in Coots, and of course in Ottawa, because that was sort of the outlying issue at the time it was invoked, under ordinary criminal law. That is completely clear. The most that we've heard from the police witnesses is that it was helpful, the Emergencies Act, that it sort of greased the wheels. And I don't know about you, Rob, but I don't know of any cop who is going to not welcome the chance to have more mechanisms for enforcing the law, um, so that it cannot be the standard. Well, that's the thing. And I don't think anyone disagrees with the idea that emergency powers are going to be useful. I mean, that, that's kind of the point. 
but that doesn't answer the question of whether we were to the point where it was necessary, right? Well, yes, exactly. So one of the suggestions that we make for reforming the act is that there needs to be a formal opinion from the attorney general why existing tools fall short. That's the requirement of the statute. And you'll remember when the prime minister was doing press conferences about this back in February, he gave sort of vague answers about tow trucks and about financial measures, but he never really was pinned down. And of course, Marco Mendocino and different actors in the government have given shifting answers to this question, which was a huge problem right from the beginning. And it looks like the government just never properly turned their mind to this issue. They just did what they felt they they had to do at the time. And again, that cannot be the standard. Right. And it, and it shouldn't be. And obviously, a, a part of this exercise, I think, is to ensure that we, we maintain a high bar for the use of the Emergencies Act. And what, what this piece alludes to, where you talk about possibly changing all of this, is maybe to raise that bar even a little bit higher. So what needs to come out of this in terms of changes to the act itself? So we have a number a number of suggestions. One is that we need to firm up the exhaustion of provincial and territorial authorities, not only that Um, The federal government needs to make clear why existing provincial laws are not sufficient. And there's a whole other question that I haven't mentioned um, about why Ontario didn't didn't consider its own Provincial Emergencies Act. Of course, Doug Ford is not participating, Mm -hmm. so we're probably not going to get a clear answer on that. But Alberta and Saskatchewan are participating in the commission, and they made very clear that on the call with the premiers that the prime minister held, I think the day that they uh, invoked the emergency, they were told. This is what we're doing. They were not consulted. Uh, And so the requirement needs to be explicitly made that the provinces must be consulted and must agree and then must be involved during the declaration, during the period of the emergency. Here you had, you know, a federal power grab, essentially. Right, exactly. And in in terms of, I mean, the, the oversight or even the decision itself, uh, should it be left to the prime minister and cabinet? Is is this something that, that should require not just a majority uh, of parliamentary support, but maybe some kind of a, a supermajority? Yeah, so we suggest a supermajority, so not a bare majority as is currently required. We also suggest that the act establish a parliamentary review committee, committee that will provide real-time oversight chaired by a member of the official opposition um, to avoid any appearance of bias or partisan partiality. And this is actually already an established practice in other Westminster democracies. And the committee, the idea would be during the course of the declared emergency, would meet daily, have security briefings, um, and be able to make sure that there weren't any further abuses of power, as, as we saw here. You talk about as well the idea of a, a Supreme Court of Canada review. Uh, how, how might that work? Yeah, so as I mentioned, currently a judicial review of an emergency goes to the federal court and it's on a regular basis. So even though the judge is doing his best to hear that case as, as expeditiously as possible, it's somewhat slow going. So we suggest that the legality of the declaration should go immediately to the Supreme Court of Canada um, and special advocates who have security clearance should be given full access to any of the federal government's evidence. Um, one of the issues that has come up in the course of our judicial review has been just blanket uh, declarations of cabinet confidence privilege, national security privilege. And one of the ways we've tried to deal with this in our court hearing has been to urge the court to appoint 
what's called an amicus curiae, which is essentially an impartial third party that can test the evidence. Um, because there's no question that we, we recognize cabinet confidence privilege exists, um, but the government should not be able to insulate its actions from meaningful review by just baldly asserting privilege. So it's like somebody needs to watch the watchman, essentially. Yeah. As for the inquiry itself, and, and you know, I think that's an important part of all of this. The government's going to make use of the act. There needs to be some scrutiny after the fact. And we're still in the midst of all of this. But in, in terms of changing how this all comes together, at least the, the idea right now that cabinet gets to choose who heads up this inquiry, is that something that needs to change? Yeah, absolutely. And I actually clerked for Justice Rouleau. I think he's a great judge. This should not be taken as any type of attack on him. But it's certainly the fact that uh, cabinet has the sole discretion to appoint, appoint the judge that is going to uh, judge them mm-hmm. um, leads to the perception of bias. And so our suggestion is that the head of the inquiry should be appointed by an impartial party, i.e. this parliamentary review committee that we suggest that's chaired by a member of the official opposition. Because um, we can't do justice effectively. Justice must be seen to be done in an impartial way. Very interesting. Much more. As mentioned, this op-ed, it's up at nationalpost.com and much more at theccf.ca. Joanna, thanks so much for joining us here this morning. Appreciate it. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.